Gospel of John, yet again. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in the pews in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home with you, read it, study it. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. We're going to read the text first this morning, and then we'll dive in. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are not sitting here in this room, that you're not in this building, you're not here in the city, you're not even in this time and place, you're you're not in 2021, thank God. Imagine with me for a moment that the year is 31 A.D., You are in Alexandria, the ancient city in Egypt. You have, as a young man, recently been converted to the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through a Jewish missionary named Omari. And through him, you're learning what it means to follow God. You're memorizing scripture. You're sitting under his discipleship and teaching. You're praying. You're going to the synagogue there in Alexandria. Any chance you get. And as you're being trained up in the faith, you've heard about these faithful Jews who go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the high holy days, like Passover, at the temple. As you hear about this, you ask Omari, what is the Passover? And he tells you, it's a time where God's people remember the story of their great salvation from slavery in Egypt. You can still remember Omari telling you the story of how God brought judgment against Pharaoh by killing the firstborn of all the sons in the land of Egypt, and how his mercy would fall on any household that put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the home, and how God's wrath would literally pass over those homes who had put their trust in the blood of the lamb. Now, as you heard this story for the first time, you came to understand a concept that was somewhat foreign to you, You came to understand the concept of grace. And you were so moved in your heart by what you heard that you decided that you had to make a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. You had to go up there and observe the Passover at the Holy Temple of God. As you began to make your plans, you saw that the journey would be a long one. 600 miles from Alexandria to Jerusalem. You're worried about how you're going to take your sacrificial lamb all the way up there. How are you going to travel that far with the lamb? Don't worry, says Omari. You can buy your lamb when you get to Jerusalem. 
And so you plan, you prepare, and you finally set out to the holy city. After eight days of travel, you finally make it to Jerusalem. When you get there, you're tired, exhausted, you're you're road-weary. You try to find a room where you can go and rest somewhere on the outskirts of the city, but there's no vacancy anywhere in the city during the week of the Passover. It's swollen with travelers. You're from Alexandria, a massive city in ancient Egypt, but even you have never seen so many people in one place at one time before. As you're walking on the road, you talk with another pilgrim who tells you that 400 to maybe 500,000 people are there with you in the city to celebrate Passover. After a while, you finally give up looking for a room and you join the thousands of others who can't find a room and you just find a a nice soft place on the grass to just lay down, rest your head, and get some sleep before the big day. When you wake up in the morning, you've got two items on your to-do list. Number one, you need to find the sacrificial lamb. You need to go purchase it. Number two, you need to find somewhere to exchange your Egyptian coinage for the silver coinage that they only accepted the temple. And by mid-morning, you failed at both of these tasks. According to some of the locals, the sacrificial animals that needed to be purchased for the temple, these animals used to be sold all throughout the city and even in the Kidron Valley surrounding Jerusalem. But these days, all the animal vendors do their business right in the temple courts. The same thing is true for the money changers. If you want to change your money out for the silver money that they accept at the temple, the only place you can do that is right there in the outer court of the temple. So, finally, you set your face to the temple mount. And you can see the temple off in the distance as you make your way through the city. And as you walk, you try not to waste your time. You try to focus. You try to meditate on all the things that Omari taught you about the temple. All the reasons why the temple is so important to to these followers of God. You remember Omari telling you that the temple is where God's holy presence dwells with his people. Apparently it wasn't always that way. Omari told you that in the beginning God dwelt with his people in a garden. And then after that he traveled with them through the desert in something like a roaming temple, a tabernacle. And then one day God allowed a temple to be built for himself by one of his servants. And he filled the temple with the presence of his glory, which was God's way of saying, I love you and I am here with you. I am your God, you are my people. Now the thing that you remember most of all from these lessons from Omari on the temple is when he told you that the temple is only special because that's where God is. And as you walk towards the temple, you can't help but tear up at the idea that you're walking into the very presence of God and so you begin to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. You used to belong to the world. You used to worship gods that were no gods at all, but now you know the God of the universe and you're walking into his presence and you're going to worship him as he has commanded. And as you're praying this, you can hear off in the distance the sound of, of singing. Omari told you it would be like this in Jerusalem. He said that, that the Bible has a book in it that's just nothing but songs that God's people are supposed to sing and that there's even a section in this book of songs that people sing as they're going up to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices, the Psalms of Ascent. 
Amari told you that God's people love to sing, that God himself sings over his people, and so we, his people, sing in response. And now that you're there in the city and you hear the sound, you know it to be true. And then the fullness of the temple comes into your sight. And as it does, you try to continue to meditate on all that you have heard of the temple. You start thinking about its history, how it was built by Solomon, how it was destroyed by the Babylonians, how it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and how now it's being renovated by King Herod. And as you enter the outer edge of the temple, you are momentarily stunned by what you see and what you hear and what you smell. You are expecting something glorious. But instead, what you find as you make your way into the temple is something that's chaotic. It's, it's like a Middle Eastern bazaar, a marketplace. There are hundreds of oxen and sheep and pigeons and there are these vendors and money changers and they're, they're calling out. They're bargaining. They're bartering. They're arguing. The outer court of the temple has the overpowering stench of animal musk and dung and sweat and urine. When you imagined what it would be like to walk into the temple, you dreamt of a sweet, serene, reverent ambiance. But what you find is loud, jarring, vulgar. As you confusedly make your way over to purchase your sacrificial lamb, you find that the price of sheep in the temple court is double what they would normally be in Alexandria. It's even more expensive than what it would be in Jerusalem at any other time of the year. You didn't bring enough money to buy a lamb at this price. You're on a limited budget. So what do you do? You buy a pigeon, the offering of the poor. You make your way over to the money changers, and you find that the exchange rate is also higher than what you were told it was going to be. What was supposed to be a time of joyful worship is now turning into a time of suspicion, confusion, Anxiety. And you wonder to yourself, did, did Omari know about this? Did he know that it was like this? I mean, he told me that the temple was supposed to be called a house of prayer. Is this what a house of prayer is like? You take your pigeon, you take your money, and you begin to make your way over to the offering site. And as you do, one of the men standing there in the temple catches your eye. You stop and you stare at him and you realize that he's holding something in his hand. As you move closer, you can see now that he's holding a whip. There's nothing obviously distinguishing about this man. You likely would not have noticed him in passing if you hadn't seen in his face, just for a brief moment, the look of fierce indignation. You've seen that look before. It's the look of righteous anger. So you turn to observe the man more carefully. You can see his face clearly. And what you see is a face that is set like flint. 
His eyes are like daggers. Storm clouds are gathering in his cheeks. His neck is tense and fibrous. His shoulders are set. His posture is rigid. His nostrils are flared. His jaws are clenched. And as you watch the man, you feel anxious. And you also feel safe. And you ask yourself, who is this man? And what's happening here? And before you can blink, the man begins to crack the whip. He begins to shout and preach, driving the oxen and the sheep out of the temple court. This man is fierce in his movements, yet he is calm and decisive. Above the crack of the whip and the noise and the commotion, you can hear his voice crying out in the temple courts. You can't quite make out what he's saying, but all the animal vendors are scrambling to grab their supplies and their money and their beasts. And as you stand there frozen, trying to make sense of what's happening, you hear the sound of coins. Thousands of coins crashing to the temple floor. You look up and you see that this man is flipping over table after table, one after another. And without thinking, you move closer. You, you want to hear what he's saying. He's saying something about his father's house. You can only barely make out a few phrases, a house of prayer for the nations, something about a den of thieves. After a few more minutes of chaos, the dust begins to settle. The outer court of the temple is almost empty, except for you and this man and what you now perceive to be a group of his disciples who begin to surround him as he makes his way out of the temple court. And there you stand, heart pounding, sweat dripping, pigeon still in hand, entirely unsure of what to do next. And you're, you're talking to yourself, you're asking yourself, who, who was that man? And why was he so angry? And is he going to be arrested? And as you try to make sense of what you just experienced, you can't, you, you can't help but shake the feeling that what just happened was a good thing. That what you just encountered, that who you just encountered, was more than a man. That the words that you heard for him were not merely the words of another human being, Perhaps they were the words of God. You think you can recall one of his disciples saying his name it sounded something like Jesus. You look up and you can see his silhouette faint off in the distance. And before you realize what you're doing, you begin to move towards him in faith. You don't know why, you can't explain it, but you feel compelled to follow this man. You feel like in his voice, you hear the voice of God. And wherever God is, that is exactly where you want to be. This is my attempt to bring to life for you what it must have been like to be there in the outer court of the temple when Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time in his ministry. 
That was me trying my best to give you all the historical background information and the theological information about what the Passover is and all that good stuff in a way that didn't make you feel like you were sitting in a lecture. I hope it was helpful. Now we're going to consider one thing for the rest of the sermon. We're going to consider, we're going to ask the question, why Jesus was so upset to the point where he felt like he had to cleanse the temple. Why was he so upset about what was happening there in that place when he did what he did? So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord God, we, we don't want to be the kind of church that has to be cleansed by your Son. So help us to pay very close attention to what you have for us here in your word. Help us to learn from this story. Help us to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And help us to be energetic, happy, joyful doers of the word. Lord, the promise of the new covenant is that your word will be on our hearts and that we will act because of that in true obedience. So we pray that you would impress your word by your spirit on our hearts more and more for the rest of this sermon. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, I'm going to give you four points for this morning's sermon as to why Jesus needed to cleanse the temple. Here they are. Convenience, greed, irreverence, and zeal. Four points. Convenience, greed, irreverence, and zeal. The first reason why Jesus was so upset about what was happening in the temple is because the temple had become an idol of convenience. The animal vendors and money changers that Jesus confronts in this morning's text were at one time set up in the city, all throughout the city, a big city Jerusalem, and then also throughout the Kidron Valley and the surrounding areas outside of Jerusalem. And people would buy their animals as they would come into the city and go to the Passover. That's the way it was set up. But with the passing of time, these vendors moved closer and closer to the temple until they finally ended up right there in the temple itself. They set up shop right there in the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. Why did they do this? Well, by all accounts, it was just for greater convenience. You know, like most bad ideas or good ideas with unexpected bad consequences, selling animals at the temple was, was being thought of by some well-meaning people as just a way to be helpful, a way to aid people in their worship of God. There was likely no ill intent. It just sort of organically happened. It probably didn't even happen all at once. You know, the Sanhedrin probably didn't come together and make a decision. All right, today we're moving all the animals out to the temple. It probably just happened organically throughout time. If you're going to sell these animals, why not make it as convenient for these worshipers as possible? Let's talk about Decatur. Decatur, Alabama. 60 square miles. I was surprised. I thought we were smaller than that. 60 square miles. Uh, Our city essentially exists along two major lines, right? We have 6th Avenue and the Beltline. And we have almost two of everything in our small city. We have two Walmarts. We have two Chick-fil-A's. We have two Burger King's. Two auto zones. We even have two of the things that nobody really wants two of. We have two Arby's. <laughs> we have 17 car washes. 17 car washes. And they're going to build another one right there in our city of 55,000 people. We live 
in the land of convenience. We have a consumer mentality about the food that we eat, about the places we shop, and even about the places where we're going to worship. Because we've been trained to see all of our lives through the lens of convenience, we can mistakenly assume that God values convenience as much as we do. We think God would never want to inconvenience us in any way as he calls us to worship him. But a simple reading through our Bible will show us that actually nothing could be further from the truth. As we read the story of redemption, it seems like God is not very concerned at all with our convenience, actually. Quite the opposite, in fact. He seems to have a vested interest in calling us to worship Him in a way that can be very inconvenient for our lives. There is something about God's call to worship Him that is intentionally disruptive of our convenience. Just kind of roll through the characters. God called Abraham to leave everything he had ever known, never loved, to follow him. Don't forget about the whole take your son up on the mountain and sacrifice him thing, right? David, before he became king, spent an inordinate amount of time fleeing, trying to save his own life. I think he spent something like 40 years after he was promised that he would be a king until he actually became the king. You can consider the prophets and the kind of lives that they were live, called to live in light of their service to God, the things that they had to do, the suffering that they had to endure. You can consider, consider the disciples. They had to leave their family, their friends, their businesses, all of that behind to follow Jesus. You consider Jesus himself, who, to put it lightly, was greatly inconvenienced in his earthly ministry. Consider the Apostle Paul who knew nothing but difficulty and tribulation in his service to God. As, as we're here together on Wednesday nights and we're studying 2 Corinthians, which uh, our brother Will is leading us through, we're learning about Paul's anxieties and his afflictions and his suffering and his peril and all the pressure of serving God. Romans, well, Romans 12 says that all of our lives are living sacrifices. And, you know, sacrifices are... Uh, Bloody, costly, painful affairs. Jesus tells all of his followers that in order to follow him, they have to put a cross on their back. Friends, God is not overly concerned with our convenience. He tells us plainly that to follow him will be costly. Listen to what he says in Luke 14. Those of you who do not give up everything, everything that you have cannot be my disciples. I'm sure that in some way, somehow, the people who initially allowed, however it happened, these animal vendors and money changers to set up shop at the temple were trying to be helpful. But friends, we have to remember that the road to hell is paved with good intentions and unintended consequences. Sometimes the thing that we think will be most helpful in worship can be the most detrimental to worship. By the time Jesus shows up at the temple, we see the unintended consequences of this way of thinking in relation to convenience. Things had gotten so bad that Jesus said, you know what? I got to go up in there and tear this whole place apart. This is a good lesson for us in the body of Christ. It's so easy to think that God would never want to inconvenience us. That God would never want to put an 
any kind of inconvenience in the path of someone who's coming to worship him. Friends, that mentality is super dangerous. This kind of mentality will train our people to worship at the altar of convenience. It may train them to think that if there is any roadblock or any impediment to their worship or any difficulty in the path of worship, a difficulty in the path of worship, that they are therefore relieved from their responsibility to worship God. It may train them to assume that it is our job as a church, that it's my job as a pastor, to make sure that their worship is effortless and cost-free. Friends, think about evangelism along these lines. We cannot evangelize in this way. So much of what's wrong with American evangelism today is that we just try to make people think that to come to Jesus, there's, just, there's going to be no inconvenience. Just come on down. Remember, with evangelism, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with convenience evangelism, they will expect that to follow Jesus will be a very convenient affair. And then when they find out that to follow Jesus will cost you everything, what do you think that will do to them? In our culture of ease and affluence and convenience, maybe the church should risk overdoing it in the other direction. Maybe we should train our people to live with a little inconvenience. Think about it in the context of our local church. How's the parking situation out there? If you've wondered why I haven't gotten the elders together and talked with the deacons and got a company to come out and paint lines and fix that one parking thing out there that always gets turned sideways. I don't know how it happens. We'll fix it on Sunday, and Monday it'll be turned sideways again. I don't, I don't know how. If you're wondering why we haven't fixed that, or if you wonder why we haven't gotten coffee going in the Sunday school room. When I first got here, that was a thing. We, don't, we stopped doing it. We don't, we don't have it going again. For Maybe you're wondering why we haven't replaced these old, ratty pews. They're great pews, but kind of gross. If you're, if you're wondering why we only have one projector... And it's like not in the center, of course, right? It's off to the left, so if you're sitting on, you know, you got to do this thing. Yeah, I'm not saying all of that is intentional because we want to train you to not worship at the altar of convenience. But maybe one of the reasons why we don't necessarily rush to get those things fixed is because we don't want our people to think that in order to be here and to have meaningful worship with God, everything has to be just so. We're going to have people that meet you at the door they walk you and take your kids all the way. When I read material about how to grow your church, which is very infrequently because it makes me sick, uh, it's all about just, guys, make it just the most convenient experience for people as possible. Guys, do you know that we don't have a church sign? <laughs> There's a lot of factors that are going into that, like money and, and resources. We're going to have one up soon, okay? We're finally getting there. But one of the reasons why it just hasn't been killing me to get a church sign out there, although every church growth expert says, what are you doing? you got to have a church sign. I just think, ah, they'll find us. How are we going to train our people to pick up their cross and put it on their back every single day and follow Jesus if we're training them to think that they can't come to church unless we have artisanal coffee in the Sunday school room or unless we have a stage production every Sunday morning? Take a moment and think about what it must be like to be a Christian in one of the top 10 most dangerous places in the world to follow Jesus. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Eritrea, Pakistan, China, Sudan, Yemen, Iran. 
Consider the inconvenience, to put it mildly, that they experience in order to gather with the saints and offer up true worship to God. Most of them endure fear of arrest and imprisonment, not only of them, but of their family members in many places. Lack of food, lack of water, lack of Bibles. I've heard stories that I know to be true of churches that have to gather at 2 a.m. in an old underground bunker, and when they sing hymns, they have to sing them quietly so that none of the neighbors will hear them and report on them. I've been in the jungle at a village with people who had to take a canoe six hours upriver to be there and gather with the saints on a Sunday morning. I saw it with my own two eyes. I saw them get out of the boat and walk up the shore and come to the gathering. I could go on and on. What do you think many of the Christians in these places would say about us and our excuses as to why we can't worship God? as to why we can't gather with the saints, as we can't offer our time, talent, and treasure. Maybe they'd be really charitable. Hopefully they would be. But they'd probably say that we tend to worship at the altar of convenience. King David was once given the opportunity to worship at his convenience, and this is how he responded. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David understood what the, what the final David would come and teach us, that worship is costly. We may not have to carry a lamb 15 miles up to the temple. We may not have to meet at 2 a.m. to have our Sunday service. But we experience inconveniences to be here. I know some of you have to drive very far to be here. I think the longest is an hour. Yeah? I know, I know. We have our inconveniences. Friends, you should know that God is using those to train you up into the image of Christ. He's using those inconveniences to teach you what it means to follow him. And sure, any chance you get to reduce some of those inconveniences and to make your worship to God easier and not so stressful, yeah, okay, do that. But as God just providentially allows you to experience these inconveniences, just know that he's doing it somehow, some way to make you more like his son. Point number two. The second reason why Jesus had to cleanse the temple was because of greed. Because of greed. Back in the foyer over here, <clears throat> we have that little table set up with all those free books, all these ones that I talked about in our, uh, as I introduced our service this morning. And uh, listen, we understand those books to be very good, very useful, very helpful. We hope that you go back there, you take them, you read them. Yeah, the, we understand them to be an aid in your personal worship of God. Now, over to my right over here, we have a bookstall. Uh, the books that are over here are not for free. So don't go grabbing them. And, I mean, listen, if you're going to read it, I guess, go ahead. But they're for sale. We think that these books, like those books, are good and useful, but we ask that you pay for them. Now, here, here's the question. Are we wrong for that? Are we in sin? Are we turning the gathering of the saints into a marketplace that Jesus would condemn. If Jesus walked up in here this morning, would he take the electrical wires from the stage, fashion a whip, start cracking y'all with a whip, and then go over there and rip the bookstall off the wall? I should recuse myself from this, but I can't because I'm preaching it. So I'm just going to tell you, I don't think so. 
When you look at the temple cleansing here in John's gospel, you have to understand the issue at hand is not merely the fact that money is being exchanged in a holy place. You have to remember that the temple tax that these people had to pay, it was instituted by God in the book of Exodus. So just like it costs money to do gospel ministry in our own day, it costs money to do ministry in the ancient Near East. But maybe the issue here is that the vendors are making a profit. Maybe the exchange of money isn't necessarily a big, a big deal, but making a profit is, you know, in this context. Okay, yeah, I think we're getting closer. I think that's valid, and we're going to talk about that in point three. But for now, let me just say that I think we should certainly be suspicious anytime profit margins and worship try to coexist in the same place, okay? So this seems like a good time to remind everyone that we don't make any money off the bookstall, all right? I'm not taking that money and buying me and my wife a, a, a cruise to Cancun. We actually take a loss on the bookstall. We buy books for cheap and sell them to you for even cheaper because we think that they're good and useful and we want you to read them. All right. Now, I don't think that Jesus is as angry as he is here just because money is changing hands on temple grounds, although that is part of it. I think the real heart of Jesus' anger here is seen in Matthew's account of the second temple cleansing. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says there. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves. A den of thieves. It seems like, according to Jesus, whatever business these animal vendors and money exchangers, whatever business they were conducting at the temple, it was not a legitimate business. They were stealing from God's people. What's likely happening here is that these vendors and money changers are price gouging. You guys know what price gouging is, right? We're the only business in town. You got to do it. God's word commands it. You don't want to be disobedient. Come on down. I know that lamb normally costs two shekels. This morning it's going to cost you four shekels, right? That's price gouging. And it's happening right there in the temple of God, which makes it worse, right? Price gouging is bad. Price gouging God's people in God's temple in the name of God as the people of God try to worship God That's as bad as it gets. So what would lead these people to do such a terrible thing? Greed. The heart of greed is dark and complex, and we don't have time this morning to talk about all the nastiness that is greed. Just know that greed causes us to love money and things more than God and to serve money and things rather than to serve God. Which is why Jesus speaks about it in such stark terms. Listen to what he says. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve money and God. Friends, an idol is anything that we ascribe deity to, right? It's anything that we put our trust in, our hope in. You know, this thing can save me. And money is one of the greatest idols that mankind has ever known. And I hope you can see the irony here is that the temple of God is supposed to be a place where people go and worship God. But because of the greed of these money vendors, of these money changers and these animal vendors, the outer court of the temple has become a place where money is being worshipped by those who are doing the selling. And Jesus is not happy about that. Now, these vendors and money changers, they probably would have claimed that they were there at the temple to do good, to help God's people, to not harm them. And greed works like that. Greed empowers us to rationalize our greedy endeavors 
in order to soothe our, bur- our burdened consciences. Right? Uh, I'm going to work 20 hours of overtime this week, and I'm going to make sure I got so much more money in my Roth IRA or my 401k. And, and yeah, it may be greed, and somebody may sit down and talk to you about it and be like, hey, I'm a little concerned that you're so worried about filling up your storehouses and that you don't understand that all that stuff's going to pass away. And you may respond, oh, I'm just trying to be wise. I'm just trying to save up enough money to pass on to my kids. I want to work hard and have a lot of money so that I can bless others. Well, maybe that's true. Man, I hope it is. I don't trust my own heart that much. But don't you see how easy it is to rationalize our greed? Our modern religious landscape is full of animal vendors and money changers, right? Full of people who use the church of Jesus Christ as a means for personal gain. There is no shortage of men or women who are what the Apostle Paul calls peddlers of God's word. A peddler is somebody who sells, right? These are people who use God's word as a way to make money. Those who sell the gospel for their own greedy gain. Friends, beware of any pastor, any Christian author, any theologian, any Christian institution that seems to be using its platform as a pretext for greed. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, listen to what he says to them. He says, listen, I never came with words of flattery, nor with a pretext for greed. I never came acting like I was one thing, a good pastor, a missionary evangelist, just so that I could get more money. Why did he feel like he needed to say that? Because so many people do come in the name of Christ with a pretext for greed. But here's the thing. The Joel Osteens, the Joyce Myers, the Creflo Dollars, the Darius Creightons, the insert whatever pastor here in town that you know of kind of operates this way, they are very obviously peddlers of God's word, right? They wear it right there on their $10,000 sleeve. It's so obvious as to be laughable, so obvious that if I were Satan, I wouldn't even spend much time investing in that as a strategy. The people that we need to be most careful of are those who are less obvious, more slick, those who don't wear the $10,000 suits and who don't live in the houses and fly the jets and drive the cars. We need to be aware of those who have good doctrine, those who really seem to be trying to help, to facilitate, to lead us along the right path. I don't want to this morning create within you a heart of suspicion but I do want you to have a sort of godly discernment. So let me give you one tool that I think will help you in discerning whether or not those who claim to help you are actually coming in a pretext for greed, like these people in this story. In 2 Corinthians, Paul contrasts men of greed with men of sincerity. Listen to, listen to what he says. He says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity... As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak plainly in Christ. So in in Paul's mind, there is a kind of sincerity in ministry that cannot coexist with greed. Now, without doing a big word study with you this morning and taking 15 minutes to do that, let me just tell you that this word sincerity and all that Paul means connected to it is, it, it refers to being transparent, being humble, being bold, being sacrificial, being accountable. 
So, if you're trying to discern, should I support this missionary? Can I trust this church with my offering? Can I support this financial, this institution, this Christian institution with my finances? Ask yourself this question. Are they characterized by sincerity, openness, and accountability, humility? When you find these things absent, you will almost always find greed present. So, let me ask the, the tough question. How would Jesus feel about us at 6th Avenue? I thought about that a lot this week, you know. I want to make sure that I, I, I let the word do its work in my heart, not just with you. And, you know, I think you guys are probably a better judge than I am. I could obviously rationalize my greed, the greed of the elders, the greed of the church. So just ask yourself, in this church, the way that you see our, our leaders using their resources, the way the church utilizes its resources, what do you see? Do you see openness, sincerity, humility, accountability? Do you see the love of this world? Something to think about. Point number three, irreverence. And point number two, I told you to put a pin in the question of whether or not it is necessarily sinful for there to be money changing hands on temple grounds, right? For these businesses to kind of operate the way that they were, even to make a profit if it's not uh, a sinful profit. I told you we'd come back to that. Well, here we are. We're, we're back at it, okay? As I thought uh, about this event throughout the week, I came to the conclusion that there has to be a sense in which even if there is no price gouging or anything like that taking place there at the temple, there is still a kind of desecration that Jesus is upset about. Let me give you a little thought experiment to help you understand. Imagine you're taking your family vacation. You're going to go to Washington, D.C. You got some family up there. Uh, while you're there, you want to hit up all the museums. You know, you go to the art museums. You go to the, you see Van Gogh, Monet. I love Monet. I spend it all the time. Imagine that you go to see the Civil Rights Museum. Wow. You go to the Holocaust Museum. And as you make your way in, as you're working your way through the exhibits, you find a group of people standing there laughing. They're joking. They're taking selfies in front of one of the exhibits that has all of the gold teeth that were found in the treasure chests of one of the camps there. Or what if you go down to Montgomery and you go and you want to learn about the history of racial injustice in Alabama and you take a tour through the lynching museum. And while you're there and you're just impressed about just the weight of it all, it's just crashing down all over you. And then you encounter a woman who's sitting there watching cat videos on YouTube on her phone. Or imagine that one of your relatives dies and you go to her funeral. And while you're there, you see a young couple making out vigorously. Does that make you uncomfortable even just hearing me say that? It should, right? It's just, how would you feel? I mean, there's nothing wrong with eating in a public place. There's nothing wrong with watching cat videos. There's nothing wrong with joking and talking about, you know, and taking selfies. And if that couple was married, there's nothing wrong with kissing. But there does seem to be something wrong, something profane about doing those things in that place. And irreverence is the name of what's wrong with that. 
and irreverence. A lack of recognition of the holy seems to be another issue right at the heart of Jesus' anger in this morning's text. The temple is a holy place. It's made holy by God's presence. Holy things are happening here. God's people are remembering in the Passover the story of his wrath and his grace. They're worshiping him. His holy name is being exalted. His attributes are being praised. His deeds are being celebrated. His love is being felt. The people of God should be in communion with God in this place. Which means that this is probably not an appropriate venue for conducting business. For the selling of animals, for the exchanging of money. Even if everything is on the up and up and no one's being taken advantage of in this scenario, the temple of God should not look like a Walmart or a Christian bookstore, for that matter. I'm going to give you an example that feels silly, okay? I'm telling you up front, I know it's a little silly, but just stay with me, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand the heart of the matter, the, the spirit of the law, more than the letter of the law. When we first installed this bookstall over here, uh, I thought about having someone be in charge of it and man it and kind of like stand there on Sunday mornings before service and after service to, to sell the books, you know, like have a little podium. They don't have to have a cash register, but they can have a little box, you know, and, and you say, oh, uh, the holiness of God, I want that. And you, they, the person would get the book and give it to them and then they'd give them the money. And I've seen it done that way at other churches. And I'm not saying that those churches are wrong, but at the end of the day, I said, you know, I just want to avoid any confusion. I don't want anything about this bookstall over here to feel like a business. I don't want people walking into the service where they expect to have an encounter with Christ, where they're coming broken, low, needy. They're expecting to have a an encounter with God through his word. I don't want them to, what they see right when they walk through the door, to be something that makes this feels like a, feel like a business transaction. That kind of thing just feels out of place in the holy nature of our gathering. So we just put a jar and said, put money in the jar. Point number four, zeal. Zeal. When I was a kid, I would spend most of my time making fun of other people's mamas. That was the way... That was the way we did it back in the day. I don't know if you're allowed to do that these days. Are you still allowed to tell, like, your mama's so fat jokes? Your mama's so dumb? No? She tripped over a cordless phone? No? All right. She puts her belt on with a boomerang? No? Okay. It was always in good fun when we were kids. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we were never serious, and we never took it too seriously. That was just what we did. But if you were serious... And if you wanted to get into a fight with someone, the quickest way to do it would be to say something about their mom and to really mean it, right? And the reason why is because young men know intuitively that their mothers are supposed to be honored. Any attempt to rob them of their honor is a capital offense. It's a fightable offense. Well, friends, you should know that Jesus feels that way about his father to the nth degree. At the end of the day, the reason why Jesus is so upset about what's happening here in the temple is because of how much he loved his dad, how much he valued his dad, how much he wanted his dad's name to be honored and glorified and exalted and hallowed in the earth. 
That's why we see what we see in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now this is a quotation from a psalmist uh, talking about how the psalmist just had a passion for the temple and he was opposed in every way because of that, and, but he was zealous and he wasn't going to be stopped. And now we see that being applied to Jesus. And if the psalmist cared that much about his father's house, well, how much more does Jesus, the true son of God, care about his father's house? Now, you may be thinking, Sean, I thought you said Jesus was passionate for his father's name, for his father's glory. This, what we read, says that he, he would be zealous for his father's house. Well, yeah, you have to understand that in the Old Testament, the temple of God, the house of God, represented all that God is. It was where his fullness dwelled, his name, his glory. Obviously, friends, Jesus is not concerned with the building itself, right? The temple is not special. The stones and the wood and the metal, there's nothing holy about them. God's holy presence is what made them holy. Jesus is so upset here, not because this building is being dishonored, not because this physical space is being desecrated, but because God's holy name is being desecrated torn down and treated with an attitude of irreverence. People were supposed to be there thinking about God, and instead they were there thinking about money. Jesus takes all of this to be a sign of disrespect and dishonor towards his Father, and you know what? He's not going to tolerate it. It's a capital offense. Do you remember the story in Exodus where Moses was getting ready to lead the people of God up into the promised land? God was like, all right, enough is enough. I promised you I was going to send you up into the promised land, so like, I'm going to keep my promise. You guys go. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you, but I'm not going to go with you. You remember how Moses responded to that? This is what he said. Then Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses was not zealous for all the things that God could offer. He didn't care about the land or the milk or the honey. What Moses wanted most was God himself. That's what Moses was zealous for. And in this morning's text, we see that Jesus, the greater Moses, he is just as, if not more, zealous for the presence of God. Now, as you know, because we're all a bunch of scholar historians, the temple that Jesus cleansed here in this text was actually destroyed in the year 70 AD, right? About 30, i do my math here, about 37 years, is that right? This is probably, no? So wait, I'll probably have it in my notes here. Yeah, about 37 years later, this temple was destroyed. Why? Because the temple was no longer needed. When Jesus came and when he paid the price for our sins on the cross, he did away with the need for the temple. He did away with the need for the sacrifices that used to take place in the temple. He did away and fulfilled all the need for the holy days that were celebrated there in the temple. He fulfilled all of that. So when our Mormon friends build temples today to God and they say that's where God's holy presence dwells, we can look at them and say, no, actually, it doesn't. And God kind of sealed the deal on that by destroying the temple, effectually telling all of his followers, that's not how things work anymore. 
So where does God's holy presence dwell with us now? What should we be zealous for? Jesus was zealous for the house of God because that's where God's presence dwelled. Well, if we want to follow Jesus, what should we be zealous about? Well, listen to the book of Ephesians. Paul says that all believers are being built up into a holy temple for God, a dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit. Where does God's presence dwell now? In us. In you. Particularly in the gathering of the church. God's presence is here with us this morning, brothers and sisters. And no, I don't mean here in this building. We could leave this building and go to another building. We could leave this building and go to Delano Park. The body of Christ is wherever his people are gathered together under his name, and that is where his spirit lives. So Jesus was zealous for his father and for his house. Friends, we should be zealous for the church, for the body of Christ. So there's a couple ways you can do this. Positively, you can just be actively laboring to see the church built up. You can be zealous to be active in discipleship and evangelism and praying for and encouraging your pastors who are trying to lead you. You can be zealous in giving. You should be zealous in serving, right? You can be zealous for your father in that way. You can also, like Jesus in this morning's text, be very zealous to see the church protected. My fist just kind of, just see it protected. All right, we can make sure that false teaching doesn't creep into the church. Right? We can make sure that our leaders stay on track. We can make sure that sin doesn't begin to grow up among us like, like yeast in a batch of dough. You should make sure you're here when we do things like practice church discipline. But let me offer one quick warning before I wrap up this sermon. There's a kind of zeal that we have to be careful of. Uh, young Christians, and particularly young men, listen, listen up. From, from, from one uh, overly zealous guide who's made a lot of mistakes to, to you. There is a kind of zeal that is not godly. It is a zeal that is lacking in wisdom and knowledge. It's a zeal that's lacking in patience. It's a zeal that's lacking in love or any of the fruits of the Spirit. There's a kind of zeal that comes from this world and not from Jesus, but it can very often creep into the church and masquerade as godly zeal. Let me tell you a story real quick. There was a man who showed up one day to worship with us. This was back when we had like 12 people here every Sunday. And... Uh, it was always super awkward, and I was like, oh, a visitor. How could I miss you? I'm so glad you're here. Afterwards, he came up to me. We're talking right here, actually right there, and uh, yeah, oh, I saw you in American Gospel. Oh, cool, man, you know. Oh, man, the state of the church today, ah, not great, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, the church, it's always like that, hospital for sinners kind of a thing. You know, the church, man, we don't want to believe in certain doctrines like predestination, I'm like, oh, yeah, tell me about it, man. You know, I believe it. It's right there in the Bible, right? Who could deny it? It says it right there. Predestined us, okay? Oh, but they do. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they also deny the doctrine of double predestination. You know, he, he kind of hit me with that with some intensity, looked at my face waiting for a response. And I'm like, no, yeah. I believe in that too, right there. Romans 9, clear as day. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he proceeded to tell me about a very specific, obscure version of the doctrine of double predestination that me as a theology nerd, as a pastor, I had never heard of before. And I just told him, I don't know if this is that big of a deal, man. I kind of don't care about this. And he was not happy. So, you know, that happens. We can have theological disagreements. And I try to just say, ah, this probably isn't something worth arguing about. He disagreed. And so he proceeded to argue with me. And I said, friend, maybe this isn't the right place. Maybe come back next week. Let's try to get lunch after service and let's talk about it a little bit more and maybe see if we can work through this with the scripture. And he wasn't having it. And pretty soon he's yelling at me right here in front of everyone after service to the point where he finally had to be escorted out of the building. But he didn't stop there. After he was escorted out of the building, he stood on the sidewalk and he was screaming at the people who were leaving the service trying to make their way to the cars. And he was preaching at them and calling them to repentance over some very obscure doctrine that does not have any bearing at all on whether or not we're Christians. Friends, that is zeal without knowledge. That's zeal without wisdom. That's zeal without love. And it's the kind of zeal that we have to be very, very careful of. Jesus could fashion a whip and crack it and drive people out of the temple with the kind of confidence that he had because he was the Son of God. He was the Word of God. He was preexistent with God at all of creation. He took one look at the temple and he knew, oh, something's got to change here and I'm going to be the one to do it. You're not Jesus. So be very careful and very slow to assume the posture of a temple cleanser in the church. You may need to do that. 